and welcome to the Pure Property Podcast with Track Capital, where we talk about all things property. The aim of the podcast is to give you bite-sized chunks of our industry insight and knowledge to help investors to invest intelligently. And today I'm excited to have a guest with me by the name of Gavin. And Gavin is from Earl's Fort Group. Um, I've been really excited to get Gavin on our podcast. Um, I have been on Gavin's podcast recently and I will put the link in our show notes as well. So you can go and check that out and check out Gavin's podcast as well. Um, But Gavin, why don't you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself? Because I am excited about this. I know sort of a bit about your your background and your story to to do with property. And I did mention to you, I'm excited uh, to hear it in in more detail. So if you give us a a brief intro uh, to yourself, that'd be great. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Gavin Gallagher is the name. I'm based in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, but I have worked all around the world. Um, I, as I kind of like to say, I've bought, sold, uh, built and uh, managed property from New York City to, du- to Dubai and Qatar and uh, even Africa. And so um, I've got quite a bit of experience, 25 plus years now since I bought my first property. And um, I've had all of the ups and downs that goes with a long career in real estate. So it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. I can tell you some, some like stories that will sort of make you think, geez, I'm never going into the property business. And then I can, at the, in the same breath, I can tell you other stories where you'll go, my God, is it that easy to make money? And, and so it's a very, it's a tale of two sort of parts very much. And, uh, and I'm, I kind of think I'm in the third part now. So. That's me. <laughs> That's great, and uh, yeah, it's it's going to be sort of interesting to take the listeners through through that journey because I know one of the main points which I, I sort of picked up on was sort of you were in, involved at a point which was sort of difficult, hard, detrimental, was boom or bust for a lot of of companies uh, in the in the property and people in the property industry, which is of course the financial crash. So I think before we we get to that part, why don't you start with how you sort of got into property and sort of where it sort of led you up going forward? Okay, well, like to kick it off, uh, I come from a, 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 a house building family. Okay, so my my grandfather and my father were both builders of houses. And, uh, and so it was kind of in the blood that I would be involved in property in some shape or form. But growing up, I had no idea how that would, you know, what that was going to look like. I didn't have any assumptions. And my dad was very, uh, my dad had basically gone into the family business. And when he went into the family business, he got all of the, you know, there's a bit of prejudice when you join a family business, like the, the people who are who are not family members automatically assume everything is handed to you on a platter. And, uh, and then at the other side of it, you, when your, your, your father or your, you know, your cousins or whatever, whoever you're working with, they can be particularly hard on you because they don't want you to think that you're getting it easy. Do you know what I mean? And so you have the worst of both worlds in many respects. And so my dad had experienced that and he was always telling me, Gavin, go and do your own thing. Do not think that you're going to work for the family business because it's not, it's no fun. You don't get respect, you, you know, this and that. So he went through this thing. And so I was kind of of the view that, okay, I better, better figure it out myself. And, um, but we went on a family holiday to, uh, to New York. Uh, well, it was a family holiday to America. My dad wanted to kind of explore 
the East Coast and West Coast of, of America. And so we flew for this big, long three-week holiday. We were going to go to America. And we flew into New York City. And I was, I think, 14 years of age. And I can just remember the impression that Manhattan, the skyline, and all of that had on me was absolutely like foundational it was like oh my god like the size of these buildings and stuff and like the way they mm. tower like above you so high it was it had such an impression on me that when i came back from that holiday even though i was only 14 i was obsessed with drawing tall buildings and what i got into was drawing scale drawings of Empire State Building, the World Trade Center. And what I used to love doing was to draw, you know, the tallest building in Ireland compared to them. And uh, and then you would do like, okay, let's see, I wonder what the, you know, um, what the cathedral, you know, that I saw, I wonder how tall that is compared. And you had these scale drawings and stuff. So I got really into this and I started adding more buildings. I started like studying books about New York and stuff. And, and after a while, I had these really elaborate drawings that had loads of different types of buildings in them and stuff and people were like gavin you're going to be an architect it's very obvious you know and i was what's an architect and they would explain like well you're the guy who designs the big building you know and i was like oh, okay that sounds cool and so that moment basically planted that seed and i when it came to doing my final exams i was not an academic person so i i would get like one out of 50 in spelling tests and stuff i was adhd like you know playing you know finding everything except schoolwork to, to focus on but when it came to my final exam i was told no chance you're going to become an architect unless you kind of like button down and, and really start to study so i went absolute obsessed with getting the points needed to get through and believe it or not i actually could be academic when i wanted to be and sure enough i got just like by the skin of my teeth into university and I started studying architecture. Uh, but in third year of architecture, my father uh, actually died. Um, he, he went on a business trip to Africa and he got very, very ill in Africa. And when he came back, he managed to kind of like get back to Ireland, but very, very like uh, terminally ill effectively. And he lasted only a couple of months. And so that was the point where like, that's kind of like childhood is over. Now you're kind of being thrown in the deep end. And so mm. between my mother and myself, we had to kind of figure out, okay, dad was a house builder and had various kind of business interests and stuff. Let's see, you know, what was he up to? Because he was a very typical Irish male who would not share like the, the, the problems across the kitchen table, like, you know, oh. and so it was suddenly like, whoa, what's you know what's this bank loan and what's this bank loan and so he was like building properties and stuff and you know he'd have a big bank loan and we had no idea like that the house was secured against the bank loan and things like that so it was a real baptism of fire learning how to uh, cope with you know banks coming after us and all that kind of stuff so it was a pretty difficult time um that initial period and then my mother was insistent that I finish my degree so that I at least have some sort of education rather than dropping out and, and doing it. So to be fair to her, it was, just, it was the smart move. Finished my architectural degree and started working for a big firm. And the big organization didn't work for me. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to be you know, my own boss. So within about a year, I was started my own architectural business. And it didn't really uh like anyone who 
is starts their own professional firm will know that you know you've got the image of you know what it's going to be like running your own firm like and then you've got the reality which is much less glamorous you know and yeah. i was exactly the same and uh, i thought i was going to be designing all these big buildings and everything like that and then i realized with the you know the first commission that i got was this couple that wanted a house extension and i was like extending their kitchen and i remember the fee that we agreed was like 8000 pounds and it took me months of work. And I remember thinking like, whoa, this is, this is not, this is not going to be, not, I'm not on the highway to make a million here. And uh, what's interesting is at the time I came across this little property in the, the West of Ireland. And it was, it was, a, it was an acre of land. It was farmland. It had cattle on it, but it was 25,000. And I, it was right in the middle of this town. And I bought this land for 25,000 and I went and I took the skills that I had as an architect to convert those, that site into um, a planning permission for four detached houses, each with their own little garden and a little driveway in and stuff. And I got the planning permission and then I went and I met with this local estate agent and I said, you know, how much would you think I'd get for each of these houses? Because I wanted to go off and borrow the money to build them and stuff. And so he said, I'll come back to you in a day or two with the information you need. So he came back and he said, I have a buyer for you. And I was like, I, I didn't ask you to sell it. I just said, <laughs> and he says, yeah, but you have a ready to go planning permission for this piece of land. He says, the builder who we would be asking you, you know, to build the property for you and get the prices is offering to buy it. And I said, well, how much is he going to sell it for? And I was thinking that, you know, I paid 25, maybe I'll get 35 or 40 for it, you know, and, and I'll be very happy. And, uh, and he comes back and he goes, he'll give you, with no negotiation or anything like that, he'll give you 125,000 wow. for the land. And I was just like silently on the other end of the phone, just like, you know, <laughs> absolutely like my jaw on the ground because I had spent the last, you know, six or eight months working for this couple on their house extension for eight grand. And in the space of a couple of weeks, I was about to make a hundred thousand. And I can remember just going, what on earth am I doing on the architectural stuff? Like, this is where I need to be focusing my attention. And so I kind of flipped the switch and went all in on the property side. And what I did was I, I kind of, rather than completely abandon the professional firm, I needed to bring in income. So what I did was I changed it from being an architect to being a development manager. And I said, started saying that I will, you know, take your property and I will get all of the stuff you need and then we'll actually build it out and we'll do all, we'll add the value that you need to add. And so I started working with clients doing this kind of thing. And, uh, and I learned from working with them how to do some really tasty deals. And the first, the first one that I did straight after making that 100,000 profit was I found this commercial property. It was, um, it was about 600, I can't remember exactly the price because it's about, it's a good while back now, like 15 years probably. And uh, it was, it was about 680,000, I think, or something like that. And I bought this property and it was just a big sort of cavernous retail unit. And I managed, what I did was I used my planning permission skills again to go and split the unit into 
into three sort of self-contained units. And once I got the permission, got a Kango, like a friend with a Kango hammer, put in the, the drains and the water pipe and the electrical split. And that was it, like really simple, just to put up a couple of block walls and went out, rented this thing up and managed to get three quality tenants in. Uh, it, there, was a, there was a video store, there was a, a pizza place, there was a, an off-license, you know, kind of a neighborhood center type thing. Yeah. Um, but they were all um, sort of national brands that would have like a presence in, in pretty much every street corner. And so managed to get these guys to, to lease this location and put the property up for sale. So now rather than it being a vacant, you know, shell, it was three investments um, with 25 year leases to these brand names. And uh, I didn't actually know what to expect, but I sold that property for about 2.5 million. And wow. so in the space of, you know, another six months, I had parked maybe nearly, I think actually my profit out of it, I had a partner and we split it 50-50. I think we made 900,000 each on the deal. And, and just, can... just, just on that then, did, so that was, did you have any understanding of the sort of commercial investment or commercial landlord landscape that you were going to be embarking on yeah i did by that stage because what i did was when i finished my degree in architecture i i went and i signed up for a master's in planning and development in the same university and it was the, this master's degree it focused on valuation and all of that kind of side of things and it was a real deep dive into, so how do you value land and how do you do residual valuations and, and this kind of thing. And also talking about yield and, you know, the cap rate and all of that stuff, which I had no clue about prior to doing that course. But that really opened my eyes and I suddenly realized, okay, so yield compression, I understood that term and all of these things. So suddenly, because I was working with clients who were doing similar things, I was sort of working for them learning the ropes, um, getting paid well, you know, well paid to do that, but at the same time then applying it in my own, on my own account. And so that first one was just a completely shocking kind of like, wow, this like is far more profitable than we expected it to be. And it was partly we were in the right place at the right time. We were lucky because at the time here in Ireland, we had what a lot of people refer to as the Celtic tiger. And it was when we had become, you know, the EU, we had, we had said that we were going to join the euro. And when, for us to be part of the euro meant our interest rates were going to dramatically fall. And we, our interest rates at the time were like 8 or 9%. And Germany's interest rates were 2%. And everyone said that the moment we're in the euro, the rate will be 2%. And when that happens, everything, all property values are going to compress, the yield will compress. And so it was like, okay, how quickly can you assemble a portfolio? Because everything you buy is going to go up in value. And that yeah. was the kind of the, the way we saw it. So I just said, okay, this is my opportunity. And I sort of went absolutely hell for leather to do that kind of thing. So the next deal that I did was like less than 300 meters away from that one we had just sold. And we bought a, a piece of land. And this piece of land, uh, actually, it was a building. It was an old building, okay, that had been used by a bank. And the bank didn't want to be in that location any longer. So it put the building up for sale. 
And I, I had been given a bit of a tip off that this was coming to the market soon. So I was prepared and I'd spoken to an architect and we were going to knock the building down and then we were going to build a new pro- you know, property on it. And so I had my ducks all lined up. I kind of said, okay, we'll be able to buy it for this and we'll be able to build it for this and we'll sell it for this. So the day it went f- for sale, I basically started engaging with the, the agent to buy it. And um, fast forward a couple of weeks and um, we, we, we went to this best bids and I put in my bid and I got it for 1.2 million for this property. And um, like it was only a couple of weeks after it had come to the market, I'd, I had secured it at 1.2. So closed the deal. I borrowed, by the way, 100% of the money. Um, yeah, I, that was, this is the kind of the time that we, the times that we were in, um, I, yeah. what I did was I put down, I, I put down the 120 grand deposit, with, which I had, but I borrowed everything else. And, uh, and then, cause I had to go off and obviously, you know, get the, uh, construct this building and stuff. So I wanted to keep some money back, but, um, what happened was, and this was really incredible was a, a, a financial institution in the same town had noticed that, hey, there's a great site there and it has this special designation of financial for financial use, which is very particular in the planning system. And you can't start, you can't put a financial institution anywhere. It has to have a, so they were absolutely the only people that would be interested in reusing that, that application. And so I didn't know about this and they came knocking assured as soon as I've sort of completed the deal uh, one of my friends reached out to me and said you know agent friends and he said did you just close the deal on that property and I said yeah how do you know and he goes because I was representing a client who bloody well was trying to buy it and he <laughs> said they, they they're a big institution they they were like still going through approvals and board approval and all this and like now you're the owner and they they were about to bid and I was like, oh, geez, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, and uh, he said, well, look, we need that property. Like, we, we have to buy it. So, you know, what, what will it take to buy it off you? And I just said, look, I've got a plan for this. We're going to knock it down. I've already got architects engaged. We're going to make some really good money on this. And he goes, well, look, what are you going to make? And uh, not a word of exaggeration, six weeks later, I had a profit of 2.5 million uh, wow. in my bank. Yeah, uh, 2.5 million, and it was, it was just insane because what um, that you know this was the the speed at which things were happening. Like, and it was a really it was a crazy time, and it was a time when it would be very easy for you to suddenly turn around and think that I am you know, Mr. Universe here, like I can do anything and I am infallible. And so I got this, suddenly got this false sense of security that uh, everything turns to gold. And (laughs) and I I can, I I figured out that magic formula to becoming very, very wealthy. And so, but what's, what's terrible about that is that was the lessons I was, those were the lessons I was getting. And so I was becoming bolder and I was taking bigger risks and they were all paying off. And so the mm. next deal I did, it was an 8x return. And the next deal I did was a 6x return and all of these things. And so in the space of a very short period of time, like four or five years, I suddenly had a portfolio of 65 million. Um, now I had about 40 million of debt, uh, but 65 million, uh, which seemed to me to be quite conservatively financed, you know. 
And, mm. and I went after this huge project in the south of Spain, like deals in Ireland were starting to look, they weren't looking as you know profitable because yeah. all the values had risen and stuff. And so we were looking at things, we were going, how is anyone going to make money on that deal? Like, you know, and so it went on and on like this. And so I started looking abroad. And of course, that is one of the big mistakes you make is that you start mm-hmm. looking outside, you know, grass is greener, you know, that old saying. Yeah. And I went to Spain and I bought a property in Spain as a holiday home because I had all this profit. And I started enjoying my time down there. And while I was down there, the agent who sold me the home turned around and said, would you be interested in one of these commercial units? And I was like, oh, yeah, show me. And he showed me this unit and it was well, it was actually pl- off plan. And it was a it was a, a shopping center that they were going to build in this marina. Absolutely beautiful location. Uh, right near where I lived. And I was looking at it going, uh, wow, yeah, this is beautiful. I'd, you know, I'd be very interested. So I put a deposit down on a unit and I, I found a tenant for it really, really quickly. And I thought to myself, you know what? Why would I focus on this, you know, doing it piecemeal one at a time? Why not just go for the whole thing and like basically buy it all and take full control of the entire shopping center and that way i'll put all the tenants in and i'll get the mix correct and i'll do all this and that was as simple as my philosophy was it was like i know what i'm doing i've done this back home this is exactly the same it's rinse and repeat so go for it so i went and i structured this deal it took a while to put it together and are these all off off plan by the way so all of them are off plan it was under it was about it was under construction and so it was all off plan and so basically it was a shopping center that had 42 retail units that were all fronting onto this marina. So it was like mm-hmm. a waterfront promenade with yeah. the door, the front door opening out onto this beautiful marina environment with yachts that would you know, moor up against the and stuff. So it was just absolutely stunning. And at the same time above that, then there was this kind of, um, uh, I suppose you could call it a podium, and there was apartments built above that. So I was just taking out the, the the entire commercial section, and so I put this deal together, and it was all the the entire thing was forty two million. That was to buy every single commercial unit in it, and um, I put the deal together. I put I put a, a little investment sort of grouping together, and we put twelve million of equity down. Three million of that came from me. Nine million came from these investors, and then I went off to. Royal Bank of Scotland were based in Madrid and they gave me 30 million of senior debt. And this entire deal was, I I had conversations with Ralph Lauren, with Gucci, Prada, you know, all of these, Diane von Furstenberg is a name that really rings a bell. And um, all of these names were all interested. And I was thinking, this is going to be like a really top-notch, like boutique luxury Mm -hmm. location. And uh, it's going to be, you know, really fancy. And this is, I'm going to make a fortune on this. This was my, and so the, I signed the deal uh, and seven days later, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Oh, and so when was it 2000 <laughs> and uh, yeah. So wow. 2000, uh, it was actually uh, just around 2007. And yeah. at the end of t- November, 2007, I think it was. And I can just remember everyone like going, you know, talking about, oh my God, you know, the world is going to turn upside down. And at this, like in Spain, it didn't immediately feel like that. But if mm. you were watching 
you know, MSNBC or one of those channels. It was like guys talking about, you know, blood baths and stuff. And I started to get a little bit nervous thinking, oh gosh, I wonder what's happening here. And, uh, and that was the beginning of chapter two. And so yeah. you had this like rapid rise uh, of a fortune and in the process, getting a big ego, you know, driving flashy cars, flying first class and having like, you know, I bought an apart, I bought, I had a penthouse in New York city, uh, wow. a lovely villa in Spain. Uh, I was living in a, a six bedroom mansion in, in Dublin. I was only 35, you know, so this was like, I had made it like, and yeah. 2008, bang, this happens. And suddenly banking is difficult. Deals are drying up. Like I had a load of deals that were, um, that were kind of in negotiation or in sort of agreement, more or less uh, heads of terms had been agreed. And we were now kind of thrashing out the contract. And uh, there was one where I was going to make 2.2 million profit and that <laughs> fell out of bed. And the, I can remember, I was thinking, okay, soon as I get that 2.2 million, I'm going to use that to pay off this loan over here. Cause I want to get myself, you know, stabilized. And yeah. then the, the guy called me up and says, Gavin, I'm afraid that the guy's pulled out of the deal. What you want to do? So I said, oh, you know, go back into the market. Let's, you know, let's see if what, what we can do. And he goes, well, was there, was there a particular reason? What obviously I know the market and everything was turbulent at the time, but was there a specific reason he, he drew out from his side, from his side? He was one of the big names that um, in, in the Irish uh, real estate sector, uh, I won't mention his name, but he was a guy that like would be in the papers regularly. You'd know who he was. And mm. his name, well, he was the guy I was selling to. And he was one of these kind of like on paper, he was possibly a billionaire. And yeah. um, at the time in 2007, 2008, all the property, you know, the big contractors and all of these kind of guys, they'd all become billionaires, but it was built on like billion dollar loan loans. Yeah. And, and, um, and so this was one of these guys and he saw the writing on the wall and he was buying this, like I had bought, I had, done this deal for about five and a half million and I was selling it to him for something like eight. And I can remember like I was 2.2 million was going to be my profit. And I said, okay, I'll take that in. I'll pay the tax, pay off a load yeah. of debt. Bang. I'll be much, much more stabilized. That fell out of bed. And when I, we went back to the market, the eight points, whatever it was, the eight million that we were getting from him, suddenly it was like, no, no, the best we can do is like, 6.3 and i can remember mm. thinking what are you kidding me like no no go back out and find somebody at eight you know and that was this kind of denial where rather than realizing that you know the market has changed you will never ever 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 get eight million offer again and mm. don't hold out thinking that somebody out there will <laughs> you just have to move quickly and because i denied it uh the 6.3 fell away and then it ended up uh, going below the value of the loan. And so now I was stuck where I had to keep on to that property. Um, another deal I was in the process of selling, I was going to make something like a million and a half or something, fell out of bed as well. And I can remember all of this stuff was starting to kind of happen. And it was kind of like a cascade effect where one falls out of bed, that knocks your loan to value ratio, which is kind of put the banks under pressure. So suddenly they're not lending you money over here. And because of that, you're not able to finish a development. So the, the development is now kind of undervalue because it's not able to be sold. And this cascading kind of thing of events. And I, I you know, fast forward, uh, this, this whole sort of thing took a couple of years to unravel. But I can remember 
being summoned by my banks back. I was living in Spain at this stage and uh, I was summoned back to Dublin to meet the banks, to talk about the debt situation. And I go back and I, in the preparation for this meeting, I started preparing my net worth statement. And, you know, you have your assets on one column and your liabilities on the other. And I had done this over the, you know, I had been religiously kind of doing it every year. I would update it. And it was always jumping like a healthy margin and a healthy margin. And this is what this is what had gotten inside my head. Like like in any year, like you'd be up a million and a half, two million. That's like the, the increase that you were seeing. And it was nothing that you've done. It was just the market kind of lifting you everyone up. And suddenly I'm doing this for the first time, red ink mm. popping up on the screen. And I looked at it and it was my total net worth was minus 16 million euro and it was like to go from hero to zero like uh and minus (laughs) 16 (laughs) and and it was i mean laugh about it now but at the time you can imagine this was absolutely like devastating and it was horrifying because you kind of start looking around at everything you own and like none of it is yours everything is belongs to the bank essentially and uh, Mm. and at my home i had this big six-bedroom mansion back in dublin and but I I had moved the family to Spain to kind of work on this big Spanish deal, and so the banks moved on me and took the family property off me. And normally they can't touch family property, but because my they they say you're not it's not a family property you're living in Spain, mm. so they went yeah. and they moved and it was sold. And when I had, when I had moved into that property and given the banks my uh, my valuation. It was worth 5.5 million. That was my my home at 35. They sold it in the market for 1.5, and so oh. it was absolute like like horrifying, uh, super frustrating. You know, really blood boiling. Kind of watching your all of this stuff that you'd worked so hard to build up getting stripped from you. And uh, anyway, I I didn't declare bankruptcy. But it was extraordinary, like because I did have enough assets that there was some sort of hope that these things will eventually claw their way back above the, the red line. And so, but what happened was it was just this death by a thousand cuts, where constantly at you, like like every time I picked up the phone, it was somebody pulling a plug on a deal somewhere, or it was something else. And the, the final straw. Um, where I suddenly realized like the game was up and it was kind of like the most humbling moment was I got this, it was actually coming up to um, Christmas time in, in December, I think it was 2012 or 2013. And um, I got this email and it was my main bank that had been like, you know, all of the debt, most of it had been with telling me that we are uh, triggering the, um, the full rental sweep. And, uh, and what that meant was every penny of income coming in through all of the properties that I had was now going to be diverted into their account rather than to, into my account first. And so it meant that all of, like I'd been living off of, you know, there was this surplus because interest rates were low. I had this surplus coming in and then I was feeding all of the interest payments to them and, you know, making the various management and expenses that had to be paid but there was still a margin left for me to live on. And they came in and swept everything away. And you then had to apply to go and make payments. So um, with that, suddenly I actually didn't have any income at all. I was completely wiped out. 
And I had to go cap in hand to my brother and ask my brother if he would allow me to live rent free in an apartment back in Dublin that he had. And that was like, you know, pride swallowing, uh, you know, because you've come from being Mr. Big with the, you know, the, the flashy cars and the lifestyle to match. And, you know, anytime you wanted to go on a holiday, bang, just jump on a plane and bring the family and stuff like go first class. There was, there was no consideration for cost. Suddenly everything is costing you. Like, can I afford this? Can I afford that? You know, and it was, it was a really difficult moment that put a huge amount of pressure on my, well, my marriage fell apart as a result. So I ended up divorced. Um, and it was just this moment when I realized that, do you know what? I've been spending a huge amount of my time blaming the world for this terrible thing that's happened to me instead of you know, standing up and taking ownership and just saying, you know what? There's no rescue plan here. No one's coming along to like bail me out. I have got to sort this out myself. So with the gratitude uh, to, of my brother, obviously, to, you know, for helping me out in that moment, that was the turning point where I kind of said, okay, it's time to kind of like leave all the past behind. Stop thinking about how it was. Look at what you've got. Stop focusing on what you've lost look at what you've got i've got my health and i'm uh, and i I get even i got even healthier after that i've got um three children that um, my daughters at the time i have more now but at the time i had three daughters and they were healthy and and i had this bank of knowledge and this Mm. network of people and investors and all that kind of stuff and i thought okay i'm gonna go and just build it back and, and, and go again, you know, and, uh, and it's not as simple as that. Like I'm still in the work. That's a work in progress. But one of the first things that I did was I had, um, I had left, like I had not been involved in the family business that my father had, had been part of primarily because I was doing so well that I had kind of left it. And I had sort of said, you know what, I don't really need, you know, to be involved. Um, but beggars can't be choosers when you're kind of like looking for every like possible, avenue to kind of make some money so i actually went and i started working with my cousins that were involved in this earlser group so were um, they were they were they running it at the time then we yeah we're... they like i was uh, i was a shareholder uh, in a small way but um i represented the fam my, my sort of wider family's interests there's a couple of different families involved that are all we all have the same we all share the same surname but it mm. comes kind of and those guys were looking after the business and and I came in and I was I was arriving in and I was, you know, there was a certain amount of like, well, you know, you've been off doing your own thing. Why the hell should we let you in here? But of course, I'd been I'd been in Dubai, I'd been in Qatar, I'd been in Spain, I'd been in America. I had a lot of commercial experience and I had built up this kind of knowledge of how deals are put together and what do tenants look for and so what I did was uh, I went in and got involved in the running of our, we, we have a, a business park here that the family business is involved in. And um, we've basically built up this business park from being a landfill site originally. And we've now got on it 37 office buildings that are filled with big, you know, global sort of names like Google and uh, Oracle and some of these really big names. And 
they're the occupiers in these buildings. And so given my sort of background, it made sense for me to get involved in the day-to-day kind of with these guys. And so my role now today is pretty much running this business park and running all of the assets that we still have in the business park and basically being the liaison with the tenants to try to understand where's the market going, what does the future look like? Because it's a post-COVID it's a very different world we're living in. Like obviously big office built, uh, occupiers, they don't really know what does the future look like. A lot of them are have staff working from home. So it's trying to read the tea leaves and trying to understand, okay, if we're going to go and you know make this asset more valuable, how is it going to look going forward? So there's a lot of time spent on all of that kind of stuff, meeting the big tenants and speaking to them and optimizing the assets and making this business park as uh, as good and as valuable a park as it can be on that then so obviously pandemic hits how were your commercial tenants at that that point because i know it was like you mentioned a lot of people started working from home um not, not many people were going into work so how did it affect the business at that point it was uh well a couple of different ways first of all one of the benefits of um working with big names like big global names is that they have big long leases and so 20 year lease 15 year lease whatever it is these guys are signed up to go and pay rent and so you know big occupiers they send all their staff home but they still have to pay the rent at the end of every quarter and so that or at the beginning of every quarter and that's exactly what happens so from a from a cash flow point of view it wasn't the end of the world it was like we still had rent coming in but from the, you know, from the future, looking into the crystal ball and looking ahead, you're saying, okay, well, you've got like at the time when um, before COVID hit, we would have like as a big business park, we would have um, eight or nine thousand people a day coming in to work in it, and uh, like we have a private shuttle service that that this the business that I run that we operate. And we, we bring people from our business park to the local train station and to the local uh, commuter hubs. And we were doing three and a half thousand people a day on our shuttle buses and two and a half thousand people parking their cars every day and another thousand people cycling in. And, you know, so it was a, there's a lot of logistics involved and we've got security and landscaping and all that. Um, suddenly, every single soul working from home and uh, I can tell you, it's a strange thing being used to the five o'clock rush hour and having to like drive into a queue of 500 cars, like all trying to get out the same gate to suddenly driving in and out without a single. So like, it was very, very uh, convenient, I have to say. <laughs> That's one of the benefits. This is, Jesus, there's no traffic any, lower, uh, any longer. The commute went from being, you know, 30 to 40 minutes a day to being like 15 and uh, so there was some p- positives, but, you know, to putting the, the, the landlord hat on, you're looking at these buildings and you're kind of saying like these guys, like some of them are saying that they don't need anyone going back to work or, yeah. you know, we only need you to come in for two days a week and stuff. And so when you're looking at, um, you know, we have a, a substantial portfolio what the hell is it going to look like in four years time when the next lease renewal comes up or something are they going to like say you know what we'll hand back the five floors and we'll just keep one or something like that so there's an awful lot of looking ahead now and trying to you know trying to strategize and try to figure out and also on top of that you've got this whole thing happening with uh 
the ESG. I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, with this this term now ESG, but in the large corporate sector, it is really, really powerful. And ESG is, you know, environmental, uh, social, and governance. It's those three uh, sort of areas that they want to make sure that your your assets are protected for each of those categories, and in particular, environmental. So. A lot of these buildings that we have, we've built them over the last kind of 15 years. And so they're second generation. And so when you're asking, is it sustainable? Like, it's not that sustainable. It doesn't have, you know, the the best insulation. The windows maybe are not as airtight as, as new buildings would be. And so there's an awful lot of retrofitting now. So I'm in the process of putting together uh, this, this. One of our tenants has vacated uh, a building and it's a it's a significant enough size building and we have to spend about six million renovating and refurbishing and bringing it up to a standard that new occupiers will look at and think yeah this is perfect it's got all of the sustainability that we need and be able to move into it wow wow and i suppose so through that sort of journey um obviously to, to where you are now um because i know sort of you're, you're very sort of big on the, sort of the whole mindset now just listening to that you obviously, obviously i can only imagine what the mindset mindset process was throughout that because there's so many ups then there's a, a very sharp sharp down and then you're sort of slowly back up to where you are today so i mean you didn't like you mentioned you kind of wrap yourself in a bubble at some point it's kind of blocked it all all the noise out which obviously can help but then you had to deal with it in the end so how did you how did you manage because i mean property is an absolute whirlwind whether that's commercial residential whatever part or aspect you're in it is because the market does change it fluctuates of course but um and deals fall through it's very stressful there's tenants like you mentioned commercial or residential wherever it may be but so you do need to be very headstrong but going through those times and going through the, the the emotions what was it would you say about mindset at the time maybe you didn't know about which sort of helped but also where you are now is there saying you've changed and a shift in mindset that you've noticed yeah and it's something that i i try to talk about on my my own podcast because i kind of think that this is stuff that i wish i had been aware of at the time and it's stuff that i like reminding myself as much as reminding my own audience when i'm talking about this stuff but one of the biggest risks i think in real estate is a thing called continuity bias. And that is where you are under the impression that everything that you're enjoying today is going to continue to, to kind of pay out or do whatever. Your business model will continue to perform the way you're used to it. And all of this stuff, and it's a, there's a kind of a, a natural inkling for people to ignore the threat uh, or the likelihood of that changing. And so sure enough, you can see the example. I thought that I had figured out the magic formula for becoming a millionaire. And I thought, okay, like I'm making a, you know, a million or 2 million a year. Why would I not spend like crazy? Because I'll just make the money again next year. Uh, that was the mindset, you know? And whereas if you have a content, if you're conscious of continuity bias, you would say, Gavin, this is a cyclical and dynamic market. And this is going to change. And the millions that you're making today, they could be that could be negative in two or three years, as it as it proved and turned out to be. And it's just being conscious of that I think an awful lot of people just 
have their head buried in the sand when it comes to those kind of hard truths. And of course, it's it's also temptation is very hard to say. Like you kind of people like to say that they can resist temptation, but it's when it's dangling in front of your nose, like it's not so easy. And I, you know, will you go and when you get a big payout, like will you go and buy yourself a fancy car? No, that's that's not a sensible thing to do. Sure enough, you'll be walking around a showroom and it'll be like, wow, you can afford it, you know. And yeah. this is what happened to me. And I can remember I had I was driving a very nice car. And I had this big like win. Uh, my I, my stock market portfolio was was shooting up as well, and uh, and I remember I I bought some shares and they were up like seven or eight hundred thousand in the space of a couple of months. And I can remember thinking, God, I'm 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 like making it everywhere. Like it's ha-. so, I went to to the Porsche garage, and I was walking around Porsche like looking at brand new nine eleven turbo, and I was thinking, like why on earth would I not just buy this? Like, cause I can afford it. Oh, yeah. Like, cause look at my stock market portfolio. And that was the mindset that I had, even though the back of my mind was saying, this is stupid. You've got like a car that's not even like seven months old. Like, why would you buy a Porsche yeah. now? You know, but that's the kind of temptation when you suddenly, your circumstances change like this. And uh, so continuity buys is the biggest thing. Cyclical dynamic market. Don't ever forget it. And like, if you're there thinking that, you know, you've got a great deal lined up, ready to go. It, there's a very strong likelihood that something, some spanner will be thrown in and it's going to be, it's going to be thrown out of bed. The other thing in mindset, and it's something that I've, that kind of helped me overcome when I, when I, when I had to kind of like humbly ask my brother for help is that moment of truth when you suddenly realize, geez, there's nobody here to help me. And you start looking back at what you've lost and you start dwelling on that. And something that I didn't really, whenever somebody mentions stoic philosophy, to me, that kind of sounds a bit kind of like arty and it's like, oh, you know, don't talk to me about bullshit. But actually, if you, if you give it a moment and actually pay some attention to it, it's all about how to deal with this kind of thing. And like being a stoic uh, just means that you don't look at what you've lost. You always look at what you've got. And if you have lost something, you simply look at it as a test. Are you worthy? I mean, you know, if you're in the real estate business, you are naive in the extreme to think that it is a linear upward only journey. Like you're just naive. You're living in fantasy land. And so if you're a stoic, you're going to actually say, yeah, of course it's going to fall. Like my value today, my net worth might be X, but I'm absolutely certain it will be half of that in three years time. And not to like be beating yourself up about it, but just to simply go matter of factly, like, yeah, this is the business that I'm in. Like I expect this to happen. And if a deal falls out of bed, yeah. What was I, why shouldn't I expect it to fall out of bed? Like this is the business we're in. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And so simply to flip the switch and say, whenever, like, and, and don't get me wrong, like when a deal that's worth 2 million falls out of bed, it's pretty devastating, but yeah. not, not to allow it to devastate you, but simply to turn around and go, you know what, this is simply a test. And the test is you're, you know, you claim to be a property investor or a real estate, you know, a leader in your real estate sort of sector. Uh, are you worthy of that position? Because if you are, you will take this and you'll just get on with it. 
Whereas if you're not worthy, you'd be going home depressed and you'd be crying in your milk, you know, in the morning at breakfast, like, oh, I lost this money and all this. And, and the reality is, is everybody suffers loss and just like, you know, shake yourself off and just move forward. And that's the way I've kind of dealt with it going forward now. So I don't, I don't take too much emotion in the win because I think that the next one could be a big loss. And therefore that's how you kind of go forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm always on the mindset as well of it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the market is, whether it's up or down, I will just adjust. I have to just accept the fact that market conditions change, like you mentioned, and you either step back and pull yourself away, which isn't always the best thing to do, or you just you adjust with the market. Because what you will realize when you look back over time, it doesn't matter what the market conditions are. There's always somebody doing something in the market so when it's good you've got people that are doing well with a certain way of doing things and then when it's bad there are still people that do well from that so as long as you've got one the mindset and two the realism to understand that you will have to adapt and hopefully you've got the capability or the assets or the funds to be able to do so no matter the market conditions you can always do something so you, you need to adjust and i think especially now what i've noticed coming through sort of the property industry is there's there's people that maybe have got on at where the wave has been very easy to ride and they're not maybe aware or haven't been involved or aware or done their research in terms of what can happen or what has happened in the past, which is very likely going to happen again um, in the future, as it always do, as always does, because it's cyclical and they don't prepare themselves correctly when structuring their their assets or their their investments. And I think what we will see when the market does does change um, is that those people will unfortunately suffer, which which always happens. They'd always be unfortunately you're, that you're way. Absolutely right. you're, you're absolutely right, Toby. It's not it's not. Um... It's not exclusively real estate as well. Like just look at the crypto mm. market, what it has done in the last couple of months. The amount of stories that I've read of people that were up like four or five million and they were like buying Ferraris and and suddenly their portfolio is worth like twenty five thousand, like, you know, and they are, you know, in shock. And I and I saw that in, in two thousand when the, the dot com crash happened. It was exactly yeah. the same. People just thought that this was like this magic you know moment in time where they were all now millionaires and they were living apparently at the moment there's a glut of rolex and patek philippe watches on the market being sold by all these like former crypto millionaires and they suddenly realized that they can't afford anything and they yeah. got to go and try and get the money back and so they're selling off their their assets and stuff Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is incredible. That's that's a very good point in terms in terms of crypto actually. Um so out, out of all that, obviously, I know in mindset, you've, you've uh, let us know sort of what, what you learned from that side. But in terms of property specifically, um, what would be the most valuable thing you would say you've, you've learned throughout that journey that you've been through? I would say um, probably if, if you're thinking about getting into the property market is, first of all, um, don't delay insofar as there's a, there's a lot of self-limiting beliefs. And uh, I work with clients who don't realize the value that they're already standing on. And so I've got clients that uh, I, I do, I have a small coaching uh, mastermind and um, 
and I bring guys on that are, you know, contractors and stuff. And what they want to do is they want to move from being a contractor working for clients to being somebody who's able to build their own developments and become like a house builder or whatever. And so I, and, and I've been talking to these guys and some of these guys are contractors that, you know, they have a construction firm and they, uh, and a lot of the time they don't realize like you are, you're standing on a mountain of value. Like you, you know how to build a property from like digging a hole in the ground to finishing it, somebody moving in, but they think that they're not ready for the property market. And I kind of go like, <laughs> you are so ready. Like it's just, but it's a lot of the time it's the mindset. So don't let it hold you back. Obviously there's a lot to learn and it can be a little bit overwhelming when you start the process. And so obviously there's, you know, there's podcasts that can kind of help you and there's stuff like that. There's also coaching. Be wary of coaching because I think there's a lot of guys out there that are overcharging for coaching. And, you know, you can, there's tens of thousands like to become, uh, you know, to, to, to follow this formula. And the reality is, is that the market is dynamic. And so the formula you're being taught, that could be old hat like in six months or a year. And that's like the stuff that I made all the money on you can't do that anymore because everything's gone online now. So nobody is buying these like retail units any longer. And so the market is dynamic. Don't ever forget it. And so what you're, if you're making a load of money right now, just try to kind of wake up and realize that you're, you might be in a very, very restricted moment in time when you're doing really, really well. So fantastic. Put the money aside don't blow it on like lavish uh, expenditure and don't get your lifestyle. Some of the things I've heard about premiership footballers and uh, like guys in, in America, basketball and stuff, these guys, they, they make, you know, 50,000 a week, a hundred thousand a week. And 80% of them are bankrupt within five years of retirement. And that is because they've built this lifestyle around their, their, you know, their income and, when their retirement stops and their income stops, suddenly that's the end of it. The train has stopped, and but they still want to live that lifestyle where they've got the kind of the flashy car and all that, and they're not able to fund it any longer, and they end up having mm. to declare bankruptcy. And that happens in the property sector as well. If you allow your lifestyle to get ahead of where you are financially and you start spending the profits like from the development rather than rolling it into the next one and preparing for you know, a downturn and having your rainy day fund and things like that, then you're just going to lose. Yeah, that that's a good point. I mean, I always get get asked sometimes from from clients or even just friends in terms of um, the the portfolio that, that that I have, and they say, "Oh, you must, you know, must, you must love it. You must be, you must be, you know, going away on holiday." No, the, I say I run it like a business, and it's a business I'm not involved with. That money just sits there; it rolls up, and when it gets to a point, it gets reinvested, um, and then some set aside. I don't touch it. I don't because that one day where I start to sort of dip in and take it, I then become reliant on it. And when it's not there, if something bad happens, then that's me completely screwed. And that's the one bit of advice I actually usually give anybody when they start investing in property. I just say, look, just run it like a business. Keep it separate. Don't become reliant on it. Um, and okay, depending on your circumstances, of course. But um, yeah, and that's that's correct. And what you mentioned about the footballers, I've come across some some footballers as well. When I've sold, when I was an estate agent, I was I was selling a few footballers properties, and the, I remember I never forget the one when I found out who it is, and I, I remembered him, and 
I knew the sort of level he'd played at for many, many years. And then I saw the property I was selling for him. Um, and let's just say it wasn't a mansion. It wasn't a big house. It was very, very modest, which is nothing wrong with that. But you could tell from what we saw um, and what we, we knew through the transaction, he, he clearly didn't have the money that he's bit probably amassed over that amount of time, like you said, because they, they're encouraged as well. They're always encouraged to spend their money and um, sort of live that lavish lifestyle because it's part of that. But like you said, once it stops and once that tap of money's turned off, unfortunately, a lot of them do struggle. It's the it's the clever ones that are financially savvy, or maybe yeah. they've got good financial advisors. They're the ones that have the longevity and will do well in the long term. A lot of the time, it's the family. Actually, if you've come from, if you're if your mother or father are kind of you know have a bit of wisdom there. They'd be like, make sure you save, make sure you save, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Because the, a lot of these guys will be, you know, they come from very, very humble beginnings. And so their parents have no experience of money or anything like that. So they can't give them any advice. And so these guys, it's like, you know, money falling from the sky. And it's like, of course, like, let's go and spend, spend, spend. And that's uh, all it takes is an injury and you're now out of the game. And that's it. Like you've spent everything. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a shame to see it. It is, yeah, that is always a shame to see. Um, and and lastly, last question I'll ask, which I like to ask uh, guests, um, and very relevant at the moment. How do you see the 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 property market m- moving forward at this moment in time, where we find ourselves, obviously, with inflation, etc., and and what's going on in the wider sort of economy and world? I think that well, you get a obviously it's it's there's nuances there because you've got commercial and you've got residential. On the commercial side, I think it's a challenging time because of you know the reductions in space and stuff like that. If you're in logistics, it's a it's not a not such a challenging time. It's it's a great sector to be in. Um, when you look at residential, I think there is like, there's two ways to look at it, and it's it's kind of like crystal ball gazing. I look at the demand supply imbalance and I think that the market is like bulletproof and it's going to continue to perform well. But then if you look at the average family who is out there, you know, funding a life, uh, you know, putting kids through school, all of this kind of stuff, you're, you're, you're watching your fuel bills go up. You're watching your grocery bills go up. You're watching like pretty much everything because of inflation go up. And then on top of that, you're now also looking at the rates that you're paying for mortgages going up as well. And so that little wedge of extra cash that you have is being dwindled, you know, eaten away. And I think that has got to impact the affordability and the ability to go out there and buy a house of a certain size or or get a mortgage, qualify for a mortgage of a certain size. I don't think that that can defy gravity that is definitely going to impact it. Now, there's still going to be a healthy demand out there, but whether it's going to be a, a forced reduction of prices in some way because of the fact that you've got all of these people that can't afford it any longer. So is the property going to sit there for sale for longer? Um, or are the people who are selling it going to have to reduce the price in order to capture that lower price point that now people can only afford to go to? So it's, it's really difficult. To, to say, um, you know, a lot of us would all like to kind of deny that that there's a possible sort of shaky road ahead. But I think it's possible that it could get difficult because of these things and the fact that, you know, inflation is there. The war in Ukraine is, is having a, an impact and there's a certain amount of uncertainty 
And, and so I think it'll be, you know, touchy-feely for the next bit just to kind of figure out. I, I wouldn't take any massive gambles. Um, I would be fairly prudent with what I'm doing going forward until there's some clarity. Yeah, no, that, that is good, good point and, and good advice there. I think interestingly, um, sort of a conversation I was having the other day and it sort of sprung to mind because we were talking about, obviously, like you said, sort of it, people's sort of finances being sort of re- restricted with inflation. And when I sat there and I thought, well, what I, what I can see happening more so in certain areas of the country as well and certain sort of markets, sort of certain price points, et cetera, is what we've had for quite a while is it's a bit of a I could, could could you could call it artificially inflated prices where people saw the market doing so well they were like right just throw it on for this amount and they were getting it because the price was going crazy and I think what we'll see now is is a bit more of a realization and a correction between sellers and buyers where sellers can't um, go on the market for whatever they figure they pluck out the sky just because the market's doing well because buyers are going to be resistant against it so there'll be a bit of a leveling so it may be perceived as as mark as some prices dropping but i don't think in in reality there i think they're just they'll, they'll be sort of slowing down and coming to a more realistic level and more steady level which again i always say look a steady market is always a good market to maneuver in because you know where you stand you, your feet are solid on the ground so i can see that definitely in sort of in certain sectors to certain locations um that's where I'm, I'm at the moment swaying towards but like you said it's all crystal ball all speculative and i think we've got a couple more months of data which we need to filter through before we can get even more of an understanding of how how the market is performing but yeah like you said the supply and demand imbalance at the moment for me i think it's that rock which is keeping it there and until we start seeing that start shifting um i think we will sort of still continue in in a fairly solid market until we see a shift if it is to come but only time will tell of course absolutely <laughs> brilliant brilliant well gavin thank you for today it's been it's been amazing hearing your story and yeah it's so insightful and again hearing about sort of the mindset and everything like that if if anybody wants to to find you where can they find you and what sort of handles do you use sure yeah i have got a, a website uh that goes by my name gavin j gallagher the j is important because there's like hundreds of gavin gallagher's out there otherwise so gavin and my social media is gavin j gallagher and my podcast is called Behind the Facade. And uh, yeah. it's kind of like what's going on behind the, you know, the, what, yeah. what everyone sees, what's the real, what's going on behind the facade. So yes. that is, uh, that's, that's me. Definitely. You've got to check that out, guys. And um, what we'll do in the show notes, we'll, we'll put a link to, to everything um, so you can reach out and check Gavin out and check out his podcast. So again, thank you for being on our podcast, Gavin. And yeah, I look forward to keeping in touch and speaking with you soon. My pleasure, Toby. It's been a real, it's, a, it's been great. Thank you.